Welcome to I Communicate on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. To join the conversation, call 508-871-7000. Now, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, hi everybody. Welcome to the Mindset Go radio show, otherwise known as AKA I Communicate. And great to be with you here today. And, you know, we're going to talk about unconscious bias today, but we're going to put a whole different spin on it because we're going to talk about it related to performance management, performance reviews, and how it gets in the way of those reviews. And I just want to, you know, start out by sharing a kind of a funny quick anecdote. You know, uh, bias is so tricky, right? We There's some biases we're aware we have, and there's a lot of biases we, we're probably unaware we have, or definitely unaware we have. And I really have a bias and people are going to think I'm trying to be funny, but I, I'm, this is the truth. I really have a bias against Yankees fans. And so, like, I literally, Ted, I'll be walking down the street, and I'll see someone wearing, like, a Yankees hat or a Yankees shirt, and my mood totally changes. And so it's funny. Like, obviously, I mean, I have friends that are, you know, we always say that when we're talking about, like, races or bias. I have friends that are Yankees oh, yeah. fans. Some of my best friends are Yankee fans. <laughs> Unbelievable. I don't know it, but I'm sure they are. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, but it is funny because where I want to start on bias at a really simple level today is think about your reactions, your mood changes, and how bias affects decisions you make and choices you make. And, and where we're really going to go today is around bias around performance management. And Ted, I got to ask you, you know, whatever it was in the last time in your career that you did evaluate someone's performance or gave them a review of some kind, can you think of any biases that you may have had around managing and reviewing other people? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not proud of it, but... Uh, certainly the way someone speaks and what their dialect is has an effect on me and has a bias. Um, I, I Now, I, I don't know why, but I think I got it from my wife because she grew up with a lot of Southerners in her family, but she never lived in the South. She lived overseas most of her life or in Washington. So she just cannot abide a Southern accent. So when I really want to annoy her, I'll, I'll start talking like, you know, uh, Leghorn there. What's his name? You know, oh, fo- uh, Foghorn Leghorn. Foghorn Leghorn, yeah. Leghorn yeah. That'll really send her over the edge. For me, it's when people slur their speech or they're using words incorrectly. I, I find it very difficult to take them seriously, and it's, it's a bias I've got. Well, Ted, it's actually a great example because it relates to the first area I wanted to talk about, which is body language. Now, think about if you were interviewing someone for a job. Let's go on that direction for a minute. And let's say the person didn't look you in the eye. I mean, talk about bias. We know from a perception standpoint that when people don't look you in the eye, all kinds of conclusions and judgments are made. They're not that confident. They could be hiding something. Uh, they could be kind of an aloof personality. and It, 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 it want, could also be something they had for breakfast. could like, be something they had for know, breakfast. I, right. But Well, and so here's the thing about something like a bias around what Ted talks about, using your words, body language, and things like that. 
you know, it's very possible if you're interviewing someone and they're struggling to make eye contact, it could be a side effect of some anxiety they have and nothing more. And frankly, once you get to know that person, they may have no issue looking at you in the eye. And so I say that because in an interview situation, the first opportunity you have to bias someone, whether they're not making eye contact, whether they're mumbling their words, whatever it may be, it totally skews your judgment about that person. And you may not have known going into that interview, you may not have articulated that eye contact is an important skill and someone that works for you. You may not know that, but when someone doesn't do it, boy, it sure shows up and you realize how much it could it skew your viewpoint. I can give you an example from my very early career when I was the target of this kind of bias. Um, I at first didn't want to believe it because my parents had brought me up not to see these things. <coughs> but um, I, I would go to work and I would sell. And I would be told by the sales manager to stop waving my hands around when I was talking to the customers. Stop uh, rocking back and forth or moving my body you know, away from their attention. And I said, well, you know, look, I said to the guy, I'm an actor, you know, this sales thing's new to me. I just think if you can grab your audience, you're going to have a better chance of getting them to shake their heads up and down rather than the other way. And he said that I shouldn't uh, be too creative. In too the demonstrative. Job. Right. You know, um, months later, maybe like a, a full quarter later, I was called down to the vice president's office. And I walked in and my whole team was there with the sales manager and I was given this plaque, you know, for top performance. And he said to me, Ted, what's the one thing that you think made it possible for you to achieve this? And I said, well, I wave my hands around a lot and I move around when I'm talking to the customer to keep their attention. Now, I was trying to, I was a kid and I was trying to be a wise guy with my sales manager. But the sales manager, to his credit, came to me later and he said, Ted, you're absolutely right. You keep that up. It's working. So the bias thing can also have to do with how we grow up and what our expectations are for other people that are under our supervision. Well, there's no question. And, you know, you mentioned sales. And one of the things when I do sales training or even sales coaching for entrepreneurs and business owners is I talk to them all the time that people have an inherent bias about salespeople before they even open their mouth that they're going to be pushy or aggressive or they're going to be like every other salespeople and every other core value that is inconsistent with yours. And one of the things I say to salespeople, to build trust and to develop a rapport and a relationship with someone, one of the first things you have to accomplish is to break down those biases and those perceptions because unless you can move those, then they're going to be distracted by them. Now, when we talk about, today we're talking about bias in terms of performance evaluation. And one of the funniest things about how companies traditionally evaluate their employees and, and leaders for that matter, and thank goodness this is starting to change and transition, but we do these annual performance reviews. And, and every time I, I, I talk to a company that does either semi-annual or annual performance reviews, my first question is, well, just for curiosity, What's the goal? Because if the goal of those performance reviews is to get people, give people improvement plans and point out areas of development, 
then if you're not looking at that again for another year, then or another six months, then how are you actually coaching that and in measuring that in in developing those skills if you're doing it once a year? And what's even worse, Ted, in my research, and I'm going to bring up a term that some of our audience may not know, but I'll briefly explain it. It's called the Likert scale. And the Likert scale is that old rating system of one to five, which is, you know, one being terrible, five being the best. And in my research on performance reviews and biases, one of the things that came up is most of the time, managers will give threes for two reasons. One, because if they feel like if, if it's an area of development, a core competency they need to work on, they feel like if they give a four or a five, meaning you really need to work on it, it'll break their confidence. The, the person receiving the review will become resentful and frustrated and it'll interfere with your relationship. On the positive side, if you give a four or a five that is too complimentary, they're worried that they'll be complacent and start stop working as hard to maintain those skills. So, you know, we hear in society all the time, and now more than ever, the, the kinds of biases we're hearing about most are culture bias and gender bias. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those things today because we know those are problems and there's enough going on where we're talking about that. I want to talk about bias that are kind of hidden, the unconscious biases. Uh, and granted, there's plenty of unconscious bias around gender and culture as well. But I just, it's just really interesting because when you think of a performance review, there was a survey that I found also that nine out of 10 performance reviews actually don't include accurate information when you're assessing that person. And you know, it's, it's crazy because Ted, I got to tell you, companies put so much stock in these performance reviews and it totally can shape a person's future at the company. You know, one bad performance review, one leader who's biased by the things that matter most to them, it, it can change the whole direction for that, that person. Well, that's seriously, that's one of the problems with top-down management. Unless you've got somebody in the core group that is doing the job and evaluating each other and then sending that up the chain, you're not going to get accurate information. It's just going to be an annual report that they throw in a drawer. If you really want to know what's going on, you've got to put somebody embedded in the teams. Well, and, and really, when you do a performance review, what you're ultimately trying to accomplish is three things in my mind. The first thing, you're maintaining objectivity the whole time. The second thing you're doing is providing suggestions feedback and advice that not only not only that they can use, they know how to use, right? That they can walk out of the review and feel right. like, okay, this is where I need to work on and this is how I'm going to do it. And then this is the big one. They've got to feel motivated to act on the areas of improvement. And so, so Ted, I, this is the real, really cool thing here, right? So I, I found this thing called, you ready for this? The idiosyncratic Raider effect. This wow. is what it's called. Okay. And I am such a violator of this over the course of my career. I read this and I'm like, oh, I, oh, I this do this. Is me, right? I yeah. do this. <laughs> so the idiosyncratic Raider effect is when you, you elevate someone's potential or value because they have skills you don't have. So for, for me, over the course of my career, the two areas that I've professional areas that I'm not strong in, technology and marketing. 
So let's say I'm hiring like an office manager type or something like that. And then I say, so tell me about some of your other skills. And they start saying, well, I'm pretty good with technology. I'm good at fixing computers and and figuring out how to use different softwares and stuff. Oh, God, that bell goes right off in my head to like that all of a sudden elevates this candidate. Got it. And so because we tend to admire other people and the things that we don't know how to do and have, that's the idiosyncratic Raider effect. Got it. Pretty cool, right? That is. That's uh, we can use that one. So, so look, we're gonna, you know, as we head into break, we're gonna continue and we're gonna get really into the biases. But the the thing I want you to think about as we head into the break is, you know, think about when you've evaluated anybody over the course of your life. It could be a kid on a sports team. It could be someone in a job. Any chance you've had to evaluate someone, and think of how your own personal judgments, your values, your priorities. Uh, will interfere with the ability to objectively evaluate that person. So we will be back after the break. I'm Mark Altman for I Communicate. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Okay, welcome back to iCommunicate. If you'd like to call the show, it's 508-871-7000. And would love to... 508-871-7000. So, look, before we continue on uh, with this theme, I just want to bring one quick thing up. You know... When I started Mindset Go six years ago, one of my big things, one of my core values was I feel like a lot of times when people are in a position to teach or train or educate, there's two things that are done most commonly. One of them is they will point out things to you that you need to do better. Like, hey, here, here are some things I'm noticing and observing about you. And um, the second thing they'll do is tell you what not to do. And it always bothered me, Ted, because I thought to myself, you know what? And I'm going to give you a quick example of what I'm talking about. I got an email the other day from a, from a blog that I follow. And the headline of the blog read, Seven Things to Avoid Stress and Anxiety. So I opened up the blog and I read it. And I got done reading the blog and I said, yeah, no kidding. Like, I know to do these seven things. Like, you're not reminding me of anything I don't know. But this is my, this is my beef. My beef is... What I like to do at Mindset Go is I don't want to spend time telling you what not to do and pointing out things that are obvious. I want to tell you how to execute the behaviors you need to do and how to get to the root cause to uncover the motivation where you will be able to execute those things. And at the end of the day, Ted, every time I talk to a client or an organization, I say, look, you can point these things out, but until you get people bought into doing these behaviors, you don't have anything. Right. You know, and it seems so basic. So, so here's where I'm going with that. This is where I bring it up. So I want you, as you think about the biases you have, you know, if you, if you listen to the show today and your thought process is, wow, I didn't think about that. Yeah, I might have that bias. Well, that's great. That's valuable information for you, and it's a starting point. But I also want you to think about how are you going to not let that bias interfere moving forward because that's what we're trying to talk about today. One of the things I learned from uh, Art Linkletter years and years ago is that information is power, right? Well, guess what? The information is not powerful. What's powerful 
is the person who uses that information. Mm, that's great. So true. Right, because we that's so true, Ted. I mean, we're provided, we, we have so many people in our ear every day with news and social media and ever, texting, email, everything. Get the internet in your hands now. Every day, all the time. So it's, yeah, that was great. It's how you use that information. Wow, that's 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 wonderful. So in just a quick, quick, uh, I want to go back to something I was talking about. I talked about the idiosyncratic Raider effect. The yeah, like that. that's great. The Likert scale I was talking about is a different bias. It's called the central tendency bias, which is your tendency to go central. And what Ted, what's so funny to me about the central tendency bias is the cornerstone foundational philosophy of emotional intelligence is to stay centered, right? Don't get too angry, don't get too passive. Stay in the middle. Keep yourself centered, thoughtful, curious, focused. So it's just funny. This is a time when central isn't good. Yes. So the apolitical state of mind. Now, now let me share a couple of things. So, like I said, I don't want to just tell you what not to do. I want to tell you what you can do instead. And so let me give you a couple of thoughts. A lot of companies have decided to go what's called go to what's called stack ranking. And stack ranking is when you're not evaluating the person by themselves, you're evaluating the person against the other people on the team. And a lot of research has been done that proves that that's a really not an ideal way to evaluate people because it creates a lot of internal resentment and conflict. Oh, yeah. But here's what you can do. Let's start simple. If you're evaluating someone, okay, and and I'm going to tell a brief story and then I'll tell you what to do. The story is, if you've ever been in a position of interviewing, when you're interviewing someone, you, you don't ever want to be scripted in an interview, but you have a series of questions you're always going to ask. The problem is, based on the way the other person is answering those questions, it can take you down a tangent, and you could ask a whole bunch of other questions that weren't part of the initial plan and script, which is fine except for the fact that if you're not asking the same questions to each candidate, again, you're getting a very skewed view and when you interview. So the way to get around all of these things is to evaluate people based on core competencies. Now, here's Ted at the radio station. If we were to evaluate Ted and we were to say, all right, to be a radio DJ, producer, what, what have you, what are the five most important core competencies? Now, now it's easier to avoid the central tendency bias because if one of the core competencies is voice, and we know Ted has an amazing voice, but let's say voice is one of them, okay. right? So now I'm evaluating Ted. I'm not going to, on a core competency, I could say on a one to five scale, I could say, yeah, his voice is decent, but think about the message you're also sending with the central tendency bias. You're sending a message that you're, you don't really need to improve much. You're just good enough. So the message is, okay, I'm fine where I am. I don't need to do anything. As opposed to, no, Ted, your voice is really good. I'm going to give you a four, but here's a couple of things you could do to improve it. Ted, I'm going to give you a two. You know, I think when it comes to inflection and intonation and different things you could do. So it's not just the number, right? It's give them the number with some explanation. And and, and I don't assume, Ted, I don't assume anything anymore with people. No, you can't. And so part of what you're supposed to do whenever you're evaluating or assessing anybody anyway or talking through a situation is you're supposed to give them examples 
so it can resonate in their head when you, why did you notice this? What did you see in here to tell you that you're giving me a two or a four with my voice? So that's the key is, you know, you have job descriptions. Everybody has these comprehensive job descriptions. And once someone starts a job and they're being managed in their performance, understand what are the key core competencies. And here's something else for our audience that's really important. I would bet if you could hone in on the top five to 10 core competencies for a specific job, I also bet you wouldn't weigh those core competencies equally. So, right, so then there's, let's decide what they are and let's decide of the five to 10, boy, if Ted has five of them down pat and maybe the two or three he doesn't have, are those teachable? Is he showing an aptitude for improvement in learning? So this is why we've got to stay away from those threes. And I'm not saying there'll never be a three, but most often you're just not providing any valuable information with a three. You know, when I was uh, required to do these uh, reviews and to use the corporation's documentation and never really allowed to veer from the concepts that were required by the questioning, for whatever reasons, this is what the attorneys required. I would always ask the question and then ask them, well, Here's the three core competencies you're required by the X group. Okay. What do you think the core com- competencies should be? Love that question. And then just sit back and shut up. Because either they studied their the company they're applying to, or they didn't. And you'll know immediately by their answer. And then, of course, you deliver what the company requires you to deliver. And they say, oh, geez, I didn't think of that. Well, it's in the front page of our website. I just show you if you wanted to go there later and check. <laughs> well, Ted, so so you and I had to have been brothers or something in a past life. I don't know. But all I'm going to say is, is that I ask a s- similar but slightly different question. The question I ask is I don't even tell them what they are. I actually say, let's say someone's applying for a sales position. I say, now, if I was hiring you as a consultant to find me a salesperson, what would be the three criteria you're looking for? Perfect. So it's just a spinoff of the same. You got to give them the opportunity to perform. Otherwise, they're going to walk out of there and feel like you were controlling the interview and it wasn't fair, how you treat everybody. But if if they feel like they participated, then they're going to buy into the criteria they're applying for. Well, and look, one of the other ways that you can put these behaviors and habits into effect to be more conscious of these biases is you can create prompts for yourself. And I'll give you a very specific example. You know, one of the things that you should do when you're evaluating someone and you're evaluating yourself is you should create a scorecard. So in an interview scenario, you should have a scorecard that you're looking at so you can get an apples-to-apples comparison after the fact. If you're reviewing someone that works for you, the scorecard should be for you. And, and That's so, a great idea. Right? And so then you look after the fact and you look at the different things on your list that you were going to do to avoid being biased. And did you execute those behaviors and those performance reviews? Create the prompts, create the scorecard, create the cheat sheet. And guess what? 
if you did violate them, it's not too late. You can go back and correct the situation, especially in a performance review. You know, sometimes you can collect information ad nauseum, and you're still not going to get to the the dirt of it. What you got to do is embed somebody in the group or the organization to get some real information from. Yeah, yeah. and so, Ted, as we go into our next break, I I have a question I want you and the audience to be thinking about heading into the break. If you're reviewing someone on an annual or semi-annual basis, tell me how you're able to recall things that happened six months ago, nine months ago, ten months ago, to know how to incorporate that into a review. So think about that heading into break. I'm Mark Altman. This is I Communicate. We'll be right back. continues on full service radio 830 wcrn once again here's your host mark altman okay welcome back to i communicate i'm your host mark altman and uh president founder of mindset go where we help develop confident and effective communicators Uh, whether you're a leader whether you're on a sales team or another team in your organization so much of what we do is really to improve communication around employee engagement reducing conflict uh, any any kind of difficult performance conversation, things like that. So we're talking about a bias, specifically unconscious bias today. And I asked you when we headed into the break to think about how you're able to recall all the information because, geez, Ted, I don't know about you. I have trouble recalling something that happened two days ago. Never what, mind. What, what did I have for breakfast? This Holy morning? smoke. Oh, and so what's funny is I wonder if you don't really have a system in place, and most people don't Most people don't even have a system in place to remember their own information behind handwritten to-do lists and things like that. But when you're reviewing some, someone and their livelihood and future depends on your perception and feedback you're giving them, if you can't really recall that information effectively, not only are you not able to do your job to its fullest, you're not setting them up for success. So this brings me to two of the most common biases, Ted, when it comes to performance management. One of them is called recency bias, and one of them is called spillover bias. And recency bias, as you might expect from the name, the hint in the name, is where you overinflate things that happened in the last one or two months that are on top of your mind and most recent in your memory. And the problem with recency bias, and you could look at this two ways, right? problem with recency bias is if you're only remembering the things that happened in the last one or two months, you could argue that, well, boy, if their last one or two months have been great and they've showed a lot of improvement, then isn't recency bias a good thing? But not necessarily because part of what you're supposed to be acknowledging is their strengths, their areas of development. If they have seen improvement, you should be able to speak effectively towards the areas they did develop. But the real problem with recency bias is on the negative side, where if they are struggling over the last month or two, and let's be honest, as a result of COVID and as a result of everything going on in the country, I can't tell you how many people I talk to on a daily basis who are struggling with motivation. And by the way, not to mention, we're in summertime, right? So most people aren't completely motivated to work in the summer anyway, never mind the carryover effect from COVID and other goings on. 
So the recency bias, if you don't really have a system to track what happened a month ago, six months ago, an employee file where you're, you're notating maybe positive uh, feedback from co-employees, positive feedback from clients, things that you've noticed and observed about projects and responsibilities and tasks, you're going to be subject to the recency bias and not able to execute fully. Now, the spillover bias is, is, a, is, a, is a close cousin of the recency bias because the spillover bias when doing performance evaluation is talking about because you aren't really keeping up to date because you're not having enough interaction with your team, coaching, check-ins, feedback, that you overinflate things they've done in the past, right, good or bad. So, you know, whatever precedents have been set, whatever patterns have been created, you're using that to bias your judgment and evaluation of them as opposed to the recency. So the idea is to not do either, to do both, to really be on top of what they've done uh, recently, to recognize improvements in growth or bad trends and patterns but to also have the ability to recall information over the previous year. And so as a leader, if you're listening to the show, you have to think to yourself, you know, what am I doing to do that? And, And let's be honest, if you look back, anybody who's listening who's had a performance review in the last year, think about this. Think about how the forgetfulness on the part of the raider um, can lead the employee to being overvalued or undervalued for their work. And think about this. Think about how not recognizing improvement or behavior change efforts can be the ultimate demotivator in employee engagement. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone where they they see themselves as they've been... Like, let's say you're in a relationship with a man and a woman, and the woman is trying to acknowledge areas that the husband has asked her, or vice versa, and the woman thinks she's doing all these things to really address the concerns of the man and the man's like not even noticing the man man doesn't even see it so think of how demotivating that would be to try to work on yourself for yourself or somebody else and not even be acknowledged or noticed because of the recency or spillover syndrome so those are big things and i have to tell you ted you know to me the ultimate answer to frequency of reviews it's not a black and white answer because everybody has different sized teams. So the bandwidth of leaders, you can't just say, well, you should meet with your team every week or every month because not everybody has that kind of bandwidth. What you can say, though, is it all is scalable and relative. So if you had a team of, say, 10 people, I would say that you should be interacting with your team doing 15-minute or 30-minute incremental feedback sessions. And you mean individually. I do. Not only do I mean individually, I also mean those should be 360. So not only should it be you giving feedback, it should be them giving feedback as well. So if you've got a team of, let's say, 10-ish people or less, it should be no less than monthly. If you've got a team of, now you're talking, let's say, 20 to 50 people, you know, maybe you do it quarterly, and even that could be a grind. But look, at the end of the day, and the end of the day, and we've talked about this on the show before, the ultimate job of a leader is to motivate, inspire, and stay connected to the people they lead. And if you're not having, it's not a, it's not a quantity thing, right? It's a quality thing. And one of the things that happens is people do these feedback sessions and coaching sessions and reviews so intermittently 
that when they do them, it seems like a daunting task. It could take an hour. It could take an hour and a half. But if you're having short windows and frequent windows, it's much less daunting. It's much more relaxed and open-ended. And the lines of communication stay open so you don't see as many slumps or, or drops in productivity or disengaged employees. And that's why these things are so important. So I want to go on to, as we continue to talk about biases with performance review, I want to go on to the negativity bias. And, you know, I take a lot of pride in being uh, in touch with my own feelings, in touch with my own strengths and weaknesses. And I found myself yesterday uh, with my own son demonstrating a negativity bias. And here's what happened. I am someone who really has high standards and expectations. And I don't tend to celebrate victories unless they're real, like what I, what I coin real victories. So, you know, if I go out and, you know, let's say I'm playing basketball in the driveway and I take 100 foul shots, you know, if I hit 60 or 70 out of 100 foul shots, my instinctive reaction is to say, yeah, that's, that's not really good. I can do better than that. And so, and I do that partially to motivate and drive myself and not get complacent. And so there's the key word, listeners, complacent. So the negativity bias, one of the biggest consequences of the negativity bias and why people feel the need are inclined to default to it is because they're worried people are going to be complacent. So here's what happened with my son. I picked him up from camp yesterday and we started talking about camp and he started talking about basketball and he's improved a lot in basketball this summer. So he's telling me, he's like, dad, I, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm pretty good. And he started really kind of spouting off his accomplishments, not in a cocky or boastful way, but just, just feeling his oats, we'll say. Okay. And I said to him, I looked at him and I go, buddy, I don't, I don't know what you've accomplished yet that is warranting that kind of response. I mean, the season hasn't even started. Um, you haven't had the opportunity to play on the A team yet. And I feel like, I feel like, I don't know what you're necessarily satisfied and happy oh, about. Dad. Come on. I mean, you know, when are, whenever kids are able to wallow in their own goodness and, and bestness, if you will, it's, it's not to be a lesson. I mean, my dad did this to me. I, I got to tell you, you know, and, and I remember resenting it. And I, now I'm older and I understand why. But sometimes you got to let a kid feed his ego to the point where he'll experience the fact of his limitations. Well, Ted, not only do I agree with you, but let me tell you how this all ended. So I totally agree with you. And to your point, Ted, I think that is so critical in coaching and parenting because kids' confidence is so fleeting to begin with. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> right? So, so here's what happened. So he kind of got a little defensive and, you know, I finally, you know, after a couple minutes, I just let it go and that was the end of it. But then last night when I got home and he was staying with his mom last night and last night when I got home, I just felt awful. I'm like, I can't believe I couldn't just give the kid the win. Like, like, did I need to let my own biases and baggage around complacency? You were doing your job though. I mean, you know, you gotta, it's a delicate balance. Well, so I texted him. And I said, listen, I just want to tell you, I love you. And I'm glad you're feeling confident. I'm glad you're feeling like you're making progress. And I support you 100%. And he sent me a nice text back and it was fine. And I don't think he even needed me to send it necessarily. 
But that's the thing about negativity bias. We default to the areas people need to get better more than pay attention and acknowledge where they're doing well. And, and like, here's an example, okay? Think about a skill like public speaking, because this is a really common one. So think about someone who isn't a naturally gifted public speaker, but has made strides in their public speaking, is feeling more confident. You've seen demonstrations of better, not perfect, but better. Well, this is the thing we may, because of the negativity bias, we may pay more attention in that review and that evaluation to the areas that they're really struggling as opposed to think of somewhere where a person's shown progress. And if we can give them feedback on an area that there are a core competency or a skill that they're already motivated with, that they've seen progress and they have a passion for it, they could really grow by leaps and bounds in that area. But if you have the negativity bias, you're not acknowledging and paying as much attention to the growth areas that have already shown progress relative to the growth areas that still have a long way to go. And guess what, managers and leaders? Here's the thing. There's this thing when, when, when you have to get better at something, do you, you know, one of the things I ask people who I'm coaching and training is, do you want to get better at it? Do you feel like you need to get better at it? Or do you feel like you have to get better at it? And guess what? If the answer is have to, you're in trouble because that means they probably don't have a huge passion for it or interest in it. And they're going to do it to the best of their abilities, but they're probably not going to be all that motivated. If it's a need to get better at it, um, there's potential there, but they're probably going to put a lot of pressure on themselves along the way because of this inner voice telling them, you need to do better, you need to do better, you need to do better. If they say, I want to get better on it, that's the key you're looking for. Because anytime want is attached, you've got an opening and an inroads to really help and develop another human being. So that's key. So we're going we're gonna to switch off. We, we, we've talked about recency and spillover. We've talked about central tendency. We've talked about negativity. Heck, we talked about idiosyncratic radar. I'm just going to keep saying that. We, I love the sound of that, but we have covered a lot of ground. We have. So, so now we're going to talk about two of the biases that and, – and, well, I'm going I'm to save this one of them for our last segment. But I want to cover what, what we're going to call similarity bias. All right. Why don't we do that in the next break? Uh, t- I always listen to my producer. Mom always said, listen to your producer. He knows what to do. Oh, Mama also told us not to come. Remember that? <laughs> but that party, I tell you, she was right. She was. So, all right. We'll come back. We'll talk about similarity and confirmation bias. Uh, for I Communicate, I'm Mark Altman. We'll be back after the break. Communicate continues on Full Service Radio, 830 WCRN. Once again, here's your host, Mark Altman. Welcome back to I Communicate. I, I just want to start off this segment by reminding everybody this is a family show. And, you know, Ted's last comment before the break, all I'm going to say is that the uh, views and comments on this show are not necessarily reflected by the host of the show. Or the producer or in the this pro- case. Oh, boy. <laughs> so well, anyway. It's just a choice of words. Yes, it's okay, Ted. We, we love you so much, so it's totally okay. So, okay, 
Good. No, go ahead. Did you have another follow-up? No, no, no. I'm okay. not going to touch that one. Good, good. Okay. All right. So, listen, I just want to remind everybody in our last segment here of a comment I made earlier in the show because, remember, what we're talking about is prompts and ways to recognize that you're being impacted by these biases. You're influenced by them when you are evaluating and assessing other people. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but I have to bring up one of my favorite topics and Ted's is mindfulness. And so, you know, the, the way you use prompts and the way you use mindfulness is when you're going into a review, when you're interviewing someone, when you're in a position where you're giving someone feedback, you're mindful of the things you don't want to be doing. And one of the things I tell people about mindfulness is if you've listened to the show today and you're like, oh, I do do that negativity bias thing or I do do that recency bias thing, then before you sit down and coach people and review people, have a little note card or a piece of paper in front of you that says, stay away. You know, for that's, those are the prompts, like stay away from these biases. Make sure I'm conscious not to let that interfere with what I'm doing. And the beautiful part of mindfulness is you don't fail if, if you actually, in the middle of a review, do a negativity bias or do a central tendency bias and you, and you ended up doing it and it's too late and it's out there. And when the review is over, you recognize that you did it. You still get credit. It still counts because you were at least mindful that you did it. And you, you really can't change habits and behaviors until you catch yourself in the act. You know, I run a a masterminds group with a bunch of other business owners, and one of the members of the masterminds group today, in the middle of giving feedback, she changed the word but to and. And so, like, that's that's a prompt. That's mindfulness to say, wait, I started out by saying but, but I meant to say and, and she changed it and corrected it. So just remember, it's, it's not easy, but it's not impossible to use these new awarenesses and put them into play, but you have to recognize that you're do- you have to have an awareness that you do it. You have to recognize when you do it, and then you have to have cues and prompts to avoid doing it. And that's that's the key thing. So we're going to talk about uh, the last family of biases we're going to cover today, and they are all in the same family: are halo confirmation and similarity bias. And when I say halo, I'm not referring to our beloved. Uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. By the way, such a confusing team name. They should have just kept it at California Angels, Ted. I'm just throwing that out there. But in any event, the halo bias. So the halo, well, first let's talk at a very simple level, okay? We as people tend to be drawn to people like us, right? Pretty basic concept, right? People who have similar values, people who have similar qualities, competencies, People who are similar to us, we tend to get drawn to. And earlier in the show, I talked about the bias when you overrate someone who has skills and qualities that you don't. Well, this is the flip side. You overrate someone who's like you. So you have such a high opinion of yourself. When you found someone that could be a possible clone of you or like you, you act on it. And and, and part of the problem is, right, with that similarity bias, is it will give it creates a different bias because once they're hired and they start working for you, then they're going to have an unfair advantage over others because you see them a certain way relative to the rest of your team. And that could, that could impact your communication. That could impact how much you recognize that person, how much effort you put into the relationship. So there's a lot of variables, variables that go into that. 
Now, confirmation bias to me is the one that I think we use most often in so many situations as human beings because we, we want to feel validated. We want our thoughts to be confirmed. And as we've talked about on previous shows around fear and vulnerability, we've talked about that when, you, when you're in that confirmation bias mode, it prevents you from getting hurt. It prevents you from exploring and getting to know people further. And you make those snap judgments and out you go. But one of the things that happens in a confirmation bias is you're, you're able to recall instances um, that support yours easier. So in the, in the, in the confirmation uh, bias example, um, if we see things, whether it's assertive behaviors, whether it's specific core competencies that really support our values and what we think are the most important thing to succeed as a team member or a leader, those are the things we're going to gravitate to. And then when it comes review time and evaluation time, that becomes the easiest thing to recall. And again, that's, that's clearly not what we want to do. Now, what's interesting about all this is, you know, as I said before, when you talk about solutions, because I don't want to just tell you the challenges and the bias, but I want to mention solutions. The thing about solutions is it's these 360 reviews. And for those of you who don't know what a 360 review is, it allows people to give reviews to the, to the people that are reviewing them. And one of the things that get in the way of effective 360 reviews is that if you put your name to it, there's a fear for the 360 reviewer that if you give any kind of critical or developmental feedback to your boss, they'll hold a grudge, they won't treat you the same. So the biggest challenge companies faced in a 360 review is getting people confident and comfortable enough to give genuine and honest and authentic feedback so that person, that leader can learn developmentally. Now, a lot of companies do it anonymously, but even in an anonymous situation, if it's not a huge team or a huge company, you'll hear people giving the 360 reviews say, well, I know they're still going to know it's me or they'll be able to figure out it's me. But as I've mentioned, great communication, effective communication, especially when there's a hierarchy of leader to employee or parent to kid, teacher to student, coach to player, so much of it is leveling the playing field and making it seem like the other person's feedback, the other person's ideas, knowledge, and experience is just as valuable as what you're passing on. So, you know, as a final thought today, I really encourage you to figure out not just how to avoid letting these biases impact you, but also to understand how to remove that dynamic of hierarchy. And, you know, some of the most simple things, and I'm just going to give you one example because we're running out of time, is, you know, don't sit behind a desk when you're giving someone a review. Remove that barrier of person, desk, chair, because that in itself creates a hierarchy of importance. And there's just, there's a lot of simple things we can do. So I would encourage you, please, please, if you want more information on how to be a better communicator or leader, you can reach out at info at mindsetgo.com. Uh, you can reach me at 978-206-1535. We do webinars. We do uh, e-learning. We're doing training programs for companies that are short-term and long-term. So anything I can do to train or coach and support you and your organization would love to have the opportunity. So thank you again for joining us. This is Mark Altman for another edition of I Communicate. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Ted. Thank you, brother. <laughs>